0: Would you turn with me to the 10th chapter of Mark, please, Mark, uh, the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10. I have a friend who quoted a a limerick the other day that goes something like this. God made the devil. Uh, The devil made sin. God made the hot place to put the devil in. The devil didn't like it, and he didn't want to stay, and he's been acting like the devil ever since that day. Now, uh, it's a a clever little limerick, but it has some very bad theology uh, in it. Some parts of it are true, but some uh, portions are not. It is true that God made the devil. He made an angel that uh, fell. But it really is not true that God made sin in the same sense in which God created the devil. He didn't make sin out of nothing. God created Satan. He created all the angels, and he created all of the universe, and he created us out of nothing. But uh, Satan is not creative. I'm convinced that he cannot create a single thing. All he can do is take the good things that God has created and uh, distorted them and twisted them by having us use these good things for our own good. That's essentially what sin is. If you stop and think about it for a moment... Everything that's sinful is really just a distortion of something that's good. Now, a case in point is ambition. Ambition in and of itself is not sin. There is a godly ambition and there is an ungodly ambition. And uh, that's what we want to talk about this morning. These two ambitions. Mark 10 is the story of two ambitions. The ambition of Christ... And the ambition of his disciples. Now, it all happened as they were making their way down to Jerusalem for the feast of the Passover. Jesus and his disciples were traveling toward Jerusalem, accompanied by other pilgrims that were making their way to the uh, feast. The pilgrims were going to celebrate and to worship and to feast. Jesus was going to die. That was his ambition. As Luke puts it, he had set his face like a flint. He was adamant. He was resolute. Uh, He he would not be dissuaded. And uh, we pick up the story beginning in uh, chapter 10, verse 32. Luke tells us that they were on the road, that is Jesus and the disciples and the other pilgrims, going up to Jerusalem. They were coming down from Galilee, but everything in uh, in Palestine is up to, Jer- to Jerusalem, because that's the way the topography is. Jerusalem is higher than most of the other portions of, of the land of Palestine. And uh, as they were on the road going up to, Jer- to Jerusalem, Jesus was walking on ahead of them, and they were amazed at him because of his uh, courage, uh, his fortitude, his willingness to go and face death. And those who followed were fearful for themselves because they thought that uh, because they were associated with Jesus, they would die as well. And again, he took the twelve aside and began to tell them what was going to happen to him. Now, this was, would be the third occasion on which he announced his passion. He says to them, behold, verse 33, we are going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered up to the chief priests and the scribes. And they will condemn him to death and will deliver him up to the Gentiles. That's the final irony of his journey to Jerusalem and uh, the bitterness of it. His own people would take their own Messiah and deliver him up to the Gentiles to be killed. Uh, They will mock him. Verse 34, and they will spit upon him and scourge him, and they will kill him. But there is this uh, note of hope. In three days he will rise again. Now, the important thing to notice is that Jesus' ambition was to die. He had set his face like a flint to, to go to Jerusalem. He was absolutely, unalterably resolute in his conviction. He was going to die. On the other hand, the disciples were politicking uh, perhaps his comment about rising again or some or prior comment that we'll talk about in a moment aroused in them a, a passion for leadership. they wanted to uh, to share his glory in his kingdom and uh, they began to to politic in order to gain positions of of authority now this wasn 't the first time this had happened. if you go back to chapter nine verse thirty three uh, when they were in Capernaum, Mark tells us that they uh, they were arguing about who was the greatest. And uh, Jesus, if, if you recall the story, he took a little child and he gathered the little child into his arms, set it on his lap, and he said, this is one of the great ones of the kingdom. If you want to be great, you have to be very, very small, like this child. If you want to be first, you have to be last. That's in 933. And uh, that particular uh, idea that the, it's, it's the small ones who are great, it's those that think, they're, think of themselves as last, who are in fact first, occurs on three different occasions in this context, in the immediate context, because the, the, the apostles were arguing about who was the greatest. And the Lord was trying to make the point that the greatest is the one who thinks of himself as last. Uh, it occurs again in 1033. In the verse just just uh, prior to the context we want to look at, many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. Now, that's the punchline to the story of the rich young ruler. Do you remember the story? One of the so-called greats in the world came to Jesus, a very wealthy young man, and he asked how he could, could get into the kingdom. And uh, Jesus told him. And he said, well, I've done all those things. I've lived a very austere lifestyle. I've given up, I've given up a great deal. And therefore, I must be qualified. Jesus said, One thing you lack, give up your money. Give away your money. And the man turned away. And Jesus turned to his disciples and he said, How hard it is for a rich man to get into the kingdom of heaven. In fact, impossible. Now, that's the point that most people miss. It is impossible, he says. It's like trying to stuff a camel through the eye of a a needle, can't be done. He's not talking about some gate in Jerusalem that it was difficult to get camels through. And this is not mere hyperbole. His point is that it is impossible for a rich man to be saved. The disciples then ask the question that you, you and I ask, well, who then can be saved? Jesus says, with man, it is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. In other words, salvation is the work of God. Now, for myself, I don't think that Jesus was saying to the rich young ruler, give up your money and you'll be saved. That's salvation by works. And Jesus never taught that principle. What Jesus was doing was putting his finger on the one thing that this young man would not and could not give up. See, all of us want to pay a little bit for our salvation. We know that salvation is by grace. But we'd like to contribute something to the, to the thing. And... Uh, and, and what we generally do is give up something for Lent or for a lifetime, and we think you know, we, if we can just give up and give up and give up, then God will be pleased with us. And you know what happens? It happens to every one of us. You come across something you cannot give up. Perhaps it's a, it's a wrong uh, relationship, or it's some form of immorality, some kind of illicit sexual practice, or maybe it's greed, or an unforgiving spirit, or an unthankful heart. With Paul, it was covetousness. He couldn't stop wanting things he couldn't have. And uh, you, you you come to that sticking point in your life. You can't give it up. And you have to throw in the towel. You have to do what the what the publican did and say, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. I can't stop sinning in this area. You've got to save me. We have to come to the end of ourselves. And that's what Jesus was trying to do with the rich young ruler. His love of money was was the issue, but that's not what... That wasn't the real problem. The real problem was that he wouldn't come to Jesus and ask to be saved from his love of money. He wanted to do it himself. And that's why Jesus then said to the disciples, You see, it's, the, it's those who think of themselves as very small, as very weak, as very limited, as very inadequate, who are the, the truly great. Now, I'm not sure that, that Peter caught his point because he says to, the, uh, to Jesus, Well, we've given up everything and uh, the the assumed uh, uh, thought, the unspoken thought in peter 's mind was, what do we get out of it what 's coming to us? We all want some reward. We feel that that in this world, there ought to be some due recompense for every for every action that 's just built into our system. I was reading a book the other day about uh, uh, a business firm, large uh, business firm here in the United States. I've forgotten now who it was. And uh, they were trying to, uh, they had, uh, there was some problem in developing a piece of machinery. And a scientist uh, uh, made a, a technical breakthrough. He discovered the answer to this problem, and he came running into the, into the office of the president with the answer to the problem. And uh, the man looked at it, and sure enough, it worked. It would solve their problem. And he, he thought, now I must reward this man in some way. What can I do? And he began to rummage around on his desk. And the only thing he could find was an old banana that was left over from yesterday's breakfast or lunch. And he took the thing out of hand to the man and said, here! That was his reward. And uh, as I understand now, they uh, award a little gold banana for every, uh, every technical advance that someone makes. We, uh, we, uh, we like to be rewarded for things. We feel that it's our our just uh, due. And that's what Peter was thinking. Look what I've given up. And uh, Jesus says something very interesting uh, to him in verse 29. Truly I say to you, there's no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms for my sake or for the gospel's sake. But that sh- he should receive a hundred times as much now in the present age, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms, along with persecutions. You can expect that. that that's never alleviated. But uh, many, many, many things come. You'll be duly recompensed, he said, not only in this age but in the age to come when you receive eternal life. Now, Matthew adds something that Mark doesn't. It's very significant. He says to, to Peter at this point, and you will sit... The apostles will sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 nations of Israel. Bingo. They immediately began to think of of a position of authority and glory. And uh, Peter and James and John, having heard this comment to Peter, were thinking, we not only want to sit on 12 thrones, we want the best seats. We want to be as close to you as we can. But more importantly, we want the power and the authority and the prestige that comes... With proximity to you in the kingdom. And every one of us can identify. We're all ambitious creatures. We want the best. We don't want to be beautiful. We want to be the most beautiful. We, we don't want to be successful. We want to be the most successful. We want the most glory. And uh, this is what the disciples were wrestling with. And our Lord very patiently and, and very graciously begins to lead them out of this, uh, this misdirected ambition. Notice what uh, what he does. Uh, in verse 35, we're told that, that James and and John, the two sons of Zebedee came up came up to Jesus saying to him, "Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you." Now that's the sort of prior question you always put to another question. You know you have no business asking. Uh I, you've, you've probably had your kids come to you and say, Hey, Dad, will you do something for me? And uh, if you're thoughtful at all, you say, Well, that depends. Well, what is it you want me to do for you? Well, that's, that's the very question that, that uh, James and John put to Jesus. Now, actually, we know from Matthew that it was James and John and their mother that came. They had a doting mother, and uh, mothers always want the best for their children. And she was looking out for their interests as well. But Peter, who is Mark's authority for this gospel, knew very well who the prime movers were. Uh, her, uh, Their mother was involved. But it was James and John who were jockeying for for positions of authority. They wanted uh, they wanted these special positions. So they asked this first question. Will you do something for us? Jesus said, well, it all depends. What, what do you want me to do for you? They said to him, grant that we may sit in your glory one on your right and one on your left. So they wanted positions of glory, of power, prestige. Now they were certainly qualified for it. These two were in the inner circle. They were well connected. And uh, there was no reason why they wouldn't have these, uh, necessarily have these uh, positions of authority. But uh, they were asking the wrong question. Because they did not, at this point, understand the nature of true leadership. And they did not understand that it is really not proper for anyone to ask for glory. Jeremiah said, do you seek great things for yourself? Seek them not. It's always wrong to politic and to maneuver in order to gain glory or to gain a position of authority. And so their question was all wrong. But Jesus says to them in verse 38, You do not know what you're asking for. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? Now, uh, the cup is a common metaphor, was back then, for sharing someone's destiny, someone's fate. And uh, the metaphor of baptism is parallel to it popular greek the idea uh, was that of being engulfed or immersed in something we still use the word that way engulfed in trouble or immersed in problems now what jesus is saying is that he had a, a cup to drink a baptism to be immersed in and he was thinking of of his life of suffering which culminated in his death the verb tenses are present here i don't think he's talking about the future not the cross per se, although it involved the cross. He's talking about his lifestyle of service and suffering. He was the suffering servant from the very beginning of his life. And now he says to the, to the apostles, are, are, are you willing to, to share my fate? Are you willing to suffer as I suffered? Are you willing to serve others as I've served them? And they say, as we would say, Sure, of course, naturally, we are. Like Peter, I'll follow you to your death, you see. Uh, and they did, as a matter of fact, they did. Uh, James uh, was the first of the apostles to be martyred. He was beheaded by Herod. Uh, Jan- uh, uh, John was the last. As far as we know, he was he was exiled to the penal colony on the island of Patmos, and he lived out his, his days in loneliness there, walking the, beach, the beaches of Patmos, and uh, Papias, one of the early church fathers, tells us that, uh, that he was, he was uh, killed by the Roman uh, emperor at the end of his long exile there. So these men were both martyred. They did live out a life of, of suffering and service. There's no question about it. So uh, they, they were basically given what they, what they asked for. Jesus said, can you suffer as I suffered?" They say, we can, and they did. But Jesus goes on to say that even a lifetime of suffering does not necessarily mean that in this life we'll be exalted and glorified. Because, as Jesus goes on to say uh, in verse 39, The cup that I drink you shall drink, and you shall be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. But to sit on my right or on my left, this is not mine to give. It is for those for whom it has been prepared. Now notice he does not say it is for those who are prepared for it. He's not saying that suffering prepares you for leadership. That may be true. What he's saying is that leadership is given. Leaders are not born, they are made by God. That's his point. That prominence and power and prestige and greatness comes from God. Exaltation does not come from the east or from the west, as the Old Testament puts it, but from God. It's God who raises up people to positions of prominence. Now, you see, that's what sets us free from from, uh, resentment when others are exalted or from competition with those that are in positions of leadership. The fact that someone like Wetherell Johnson or Chuck Swindoll or Mother Teresa or or Billy Graham or someone else is exalted is God's business. He's the one who gives people positions of prominence, and and, and our Lord wants to make that very clear. Those places are prepared by God. Greatness comes from God, uh, not from not from man, and uh, therefore He says it's not. Mine uh, to give. Now, when the the ten heard the request of the two, and Jesus answered, Hey, we're indignant. Mark says, Hearing this, the ten began to feel indignant toward James and John. Now, this is not righteous indignation. They were miffed because uh, uh, James and John uh, uh, beat them to the punch. They asked for these positions first. And uh, they were angry for that sake and for that reason. And so the Lord recognized that he needed to do some teaching. He needed to instruct. So he, he gathers the twelve around him and he begins to teach. And this is one of the most important teachings to be found anywhere in Scripture on the nature of true leadership. It's one of those examples of how utterly different Jesus Uh, Teaching is from the instruction you receive from the world. It is absolutely contrary to anything that that we normally would read or hear. It's contrary to the normal management models that uh, we read about. Now listen to this. Verse 42. Calling them to himself, Jesus said to them, You know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great men exercise authority over them. Now, you know that's true. Most management models are based upon the Gentile model. If you ask someone what he does, he'll say, I'm a manager, if he's in a position of management. And he will say, I have uh, 50 people who work for me. See? That, that becomes the, uh, uh, the basis for measuring a man's leadership. How many serve him? How many he lords it over? And uh, uh, so many management models are based on bossing people around, telling them what to do. Now, happily, this is changing. It's changing radically. Because uh, in secular society, people are recognizing that it doesn't work very well. Uh, Peters and Waterman say that successful companies are companies that love their customers. Of course, the bottom line uh, for him is still money. The bottom line for us is something entirely different. But even in the world, they're recognizing that uh, the true leadership is not bossing people around and telling them what to do and manipulating them and, and managing them in, in the traditional sense. Incidentally, our words manipulate and manage come from the same Latin root, manus, which means hand, to handle people. And uh, that's usually the way we look at leadership. How do you handle people? You move them around like pieces on a chessboard to accomplish your goals, to get your aims. Say, you tell people what to do. That's leadership. Now Jesus says, "Those—that's what—that's what the Gentiles think." But listen to verse forty-three. It is not so among you. In in the church, there's a different management model. We don't lead that way. Leadership is not is not tyranny. It's not telling people what to do. There's a different model. It is not so among you, but whoever wants to be great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. For, now get this, verse 45 is the key to the entire book of, uh, of Mark. The theme of the book of Mark is the king who came to serve, the ruler who serves. And this is the thesis of the entire book. Four, the Son of Man. Now, that's Jesus' word for Messiah. That's a Messianic title. It comes from Daniel 3. Uh, Daniel saw a man coming down from heaven, taking his seat on the throne. He's obviously the Messiah. And he's described as like the Son of Man. And that became a title from that point on, or at least by the 5th century BC and and afterward. It was a title for Messiah. That's the term that Jesus uses for himself consistently, almost the only title that he uses for himself. The Son of Man, the King, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. He's the ruler who serves. He's, throughout this uh, a series on humility, this this uh, same pattern has emerged time and time again. The, the principle is stated, the, 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 the last shall be first, the small shall be great. And in every case, the example of it is Jesus. He set the pace for us. He's the ruler who, who served. Now, I read that passage earlier in Isaiah 41 for a reason, because the surfer, suffering servant... In the Old Testament is the model, again. God's heart is expressed in his desire to serve people. He came, that's what the incarnation is, it's God coming to earth and being being made in the likeness of a servant. Taking upon himself the form of a servant. Remember our Philippians 2 passage, the essential nature of a servant. That's the nature of God. To be a servant, to serve people. That's the nobility and, and dignity of that kind of, of, of humility. Leadership is servanthood. It is not tyranny. And if you want an example of it, it's Jesus who came and worked with broken reeds and and wicks that were about to... Uh, that were merely smoking and about to be extinguished. And and he gave himself in gentle, quiet, loving acts of service. And, and Mark says... He did it in order to ransom the many. The many is a quote from Isaiah 53 or an expression that had come into Jewish thought from Isaiah 53 uh, where we're where, where told that the suffering servant gave up his life for the many. For the all is the idea. For everyone. He came to serve, to ransom them. Now, the metaphor of a ransom is one of buying someone out of slavery, taking them out of slavery to sin, which is what our Lord did for us. Which tells us why he came to serve. He didn't merely serve indiscriminately. But he served in order to save. Now that's, the, that, that's when you look at God. Or when you look at the Lord. What you see is, is a God who came to serve in order to save. That's the essence of the gospel. That's the thesis of the book of Mark. And the example of it for us is Jesus himself. Our role in life is to serve in order to save. Bishop Riley, who lived uh, back in the uh, early part of the 19th century, wrote, Above all, let all who desire to walk in Christ's steps labor to be useful to others. Let them lay themselves down to do good in their day and generation. Let them never forget that true greatness does not consist in being a general or a statesman or an artist. It consists in devoting ourselves, body, soul, and spirit, to the work of making our fellow men more holy and more happy. It is those who exert themselves by the use of Scripture means to lessen the sorrow and increase the joy of all around them, the Edwards, the Wilber forces, the Judsons of our country, who are truly great in the sight of God. While they live, they may be laughed at, mocked, ridiculed, and often persecuted, but their memorial is on high, their names are written in heaven, their praise endures forever. Let us remember these things, and while we have time, do good to all men, and be servants of all for Christ's sake. Let us strive to leave the world better, happier, and holier than it was when we were born. A life spent this way is truly happy and has its own reward. You see what he's saying? He's saying precisely what Mark says. Jesus came not to uh, to serve himself, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And that's the model for us. We're to serve as he served. Now, there are are many spheres, I think, in which this uh, servitude operates. It certainly operates within the church. We're servants of one another, Paul says. There's no boss in the church. No Protestant prelate. Uh, We we Protestants uh, decry the fact that uh, Roman Catholics believe that there is one pope over the church. But frankly, many of us uh, think in uh, in terms of one pope over every church. There's some master pastor in the church who, who calls all the shots. And who rules with an iron hand. And who tells people what to do. And how to do it. And when to do it. And where to do it and and we have no business doing that sort of thing. As Jesus said, we're brothers. Now there has to be leadership. There has to be direction in the church. But it's a leadership of of love and example and servitude. And the goal of it all is not merely to get our our programs installed, but to see people's lives changed. People are, are 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 always the uh, they're the main thing. You know, whatever we do when we're developing programs here, the main thing is to see people grow in grace. The most important thing is to help people strengthen their grip upon God and learn to believe Him and trust Him and count on Him and emulate Him as they, as they rely upon His strength. That's the main thing, not to manipulate people and move them around and make them do things in order to, to get done what we want done. It's totally contrary, utterly wrong. Ours is a leadership of servanthood. We, we serve in order to save. And uh, it certainly is true in the realm of politics. This has long been recognized. Cicero said that the chief law of politics is to secure the good for those you rule. And uh, anyone who's involved in politics or in local government needs to recognize that the goal of leadership there is not to feather your own nest, And not to gain a position of prominence. If God has given you prominence, it's a gift that is to be used in order to serve others so that their life, as Bishop Riley put it, is holier and healthier than it was before you came. And it's even true in the realm of business. As I've said before, there are two ethics, one ethics in the church and another set of ethics in business. The bottom line for us is not merely to make money, although obviously you have to make a profit in order to survive, The bottom line is to serve people, to serve them as Christ served, to love them and to think in terms of their needs rather than what uh, we can make uh, out out of a deal. And then where I think this comes home to me more than in any other place is in my own home. Because leadership in the home is a leadership of servanthood. It is not tyranny. Frankly, here's where most of us men have uh, uh, have gone astray. The, the model of management that we have is the Gentiles' model. We feel that, uh, actually, there are some men who feel that they are vastly superior to women. They're more intelligent. They're more reasonable. They're better able to handle money. They uh, uh, they, they can they can make uh, proper. Uh, prudent decisions, and their wives cannot. And uh, and again, we know from Scripture that's absolutely contrary, both men and women, uh, to the Scriptures. Uh, both men and women are created in the image of God. And uh, they have equal value and worth and weight in God's sight. And they are equal. Uh, where men tend to be weak, women tend to be strong. Where women tend to be strong, men tend to be weak. And, and that's why they're They need to work together in order to make a whole. And uh, therefore, it's totally wrong to put down women or despise them or to think of them as little children or to treat them like little children, uh, to give them an allowance as as we give little children because we feel that they can't handle the money properly or that sort of thing. Uh, Dorothy Sayers, who's one of my favorite writers, Said, uh, perhaps it's no wonder that the women were first at the cradle and last at the cross. They had never known a man like this man, Jesus. There never has been such another. A prophet and teacher who never nagged them, never flattered or coaxed or patronized them, who rebuked without querulousness and who praised without condescension, who took their questions and arguments seriously, who had no axe to grind and no uneasy male dignity to defend who took them as he found them and was completely unselfconscious. There is no act, no sermon, no parable in the whole gospel that borrows its pungency from female perversity. Nobody could possibly guess from the words and deeds of Jesus that there was anything funny about women. But uh, some men don't believe that. They treat them like little children. And uh, they confuse male leadership with male dominance. Now, we need to realize that These homes do not belong to us. Our wives do not belong to us. Our children do not belong to us. Our money does not belong to us. We are joint heirs of the grace of God. And our leadership, uh, it it has to be uh, good. We have to lead in our homes. We have to give direction. But it's a leadership of servanthood and love. We set the example. And we lead by persuasion, not by tyranny. We don't demand. And we listen to what our wives can can teach us. And we serve them. There are some men who think that their wives exist merely to serve them, to jump up and get them coffee or jump up and clean the house or get the kids ready to go to school. And and they, they will not pitch in and help because they feel that God created women to serve. But that's not leadership. That's a funny kind of Gentile lordship that our Lord never intended us to manifest. We are to lead as Christ-led, giving gentle leadership, leading by example, and, and serving in any way that, that we can. Now, that's the model that our Lord has set for us. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read through a passage like this, it always strikes me as, ah, uh, uh, that's the ideal, but uh, it certainly doesn't work well. I, I don't do it, and, and it's true. I don't do it well. I like to boss people around. It's just kind of fun to get people to jump when you say something. And uh, I I start thinking, my goodness, if I don't tell people what to do, the whole thing will fall apart. But you see, that's a lack of faith, a lack of trust, confidence in what God can do. We need to learn from him. And we need to deal with the perversity in our own hearts that makes us want to tyrannize others. This morning is a good time to do that. We're going to share around the Lord's table and share in the cup. Uh, as he said, the disciples uh, would share in his. Identify ourselves with him and his example of serving, which very often results in, in suffering. And, uh, uh, and this gives us an opportunity to, to take a look at our own hearts. And to judge the, the sin and the rebellion and the indifference to God's words in our own heart. And take this cup then, as Paul puts it, in a worthy manner. In a manner that's worthy of those of us that are that are servants of the Lord. Now let's uh, let's bow our heads and our hearts as the men come forward to uh, distribute the elements, and take this this moment to think through the areas of your own life where you're inclined to to violate this truth, or I'm inclined to violate it, and. Uh, Let's sit in judgment on those tendencies and ask for forgiveness and ask for God's strength to do it the proper way.